Have you ever been in a meeting uh, where you've all been discussing this problem that seems overwhelming, complicated, you just don't know how you're going to get through it, and then someone just tentatively puts up their hand and says, have we considered this? And it's so simple and just cuts straight through the problem. Or you've been in, um, you've been in conversation with your partner and you're, you're talking about how you're feeling stressed and you don't know how you're going to organise everything, and then your wife, this isn't a personal story, but no, <laughs> your wife just says, well, let me just help you organise a little bit, and you're like, oh, I can breathe now, I can do that. That's simple. Um, well, there's, a, there's also a legend of Alexander the Great. There was this knot, this interconnected knot that was apparently so complicated to untie, and there was a prophecy associated with it, that whoever could untie the knot was going to be ruler over all of Asia. Well, Alexander the Great, he goes and approaches the knot, the Gordian knot, and he just draws his sword and cuts it in half. (laughs) Well, he did become king of Asia, so I guess that's how it works. Uh, Often there are problems that we think are larger than life, but the solution is quite simple. And in, today, we, in today's sermon, we read of the Sadducees, a group um, who approached Jesus with a seeming, seemingly complicated, problematic question. But Jesus handles it with such ease, with such care. And we hopefully will be struck by the amazing simplicity with which Christ answers uh, their, their riddle today. So that's going to come from the passage of Matthew 22, 23 to 33. So Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33. The same day, Sadducees came to him, that is Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us, The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? They all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, before we continue to look at this passage, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Jesus Christ. His ministry on earth showed us who you are, a God of love. That at the the center of who you are, there isn't a complicated, difficult God to understand, one that we have to have years of study in, in order to understand and, and approach. It's simply recognizing that Jesus Christ died on a cross for us so that we could have life and access to you, Heavenly Father. As we come to these words today, may we once again be marveled at at the amazing person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. In your name, Jesus. Amen. 
So our first point today, we only have two points today, um, is a seemingly challenging question asked by the Pharisees. That's the point. We have a seemingly challenging question asked by the, um, the Sadducees, verses 23 to 29. So we see from the passage that the same day we read that the Sadducees approached Jesus. In last week's passage, we read of a group known as the Pharisees who also had approached Jesus with a seemingly, problematically, and politically charged question. And Jesus silenced them with his response. Now, you might expect a degree of humility if you're another religious group. But no, the Sadducees, were told, directly approached Jesus. Whereas the Pharisees had sent their, their delegates, their disciples, the Sadducees are bold enough to actually approach Jesus themselves, we read. And Jesus is challenged, well, so they think, and they are attacking his authority and they are putting him in a place where they think they've got a catch mate, a checkmate, sorry, a checkmate. And they asked a question to undermine who he is. So we read, the context here is that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. So that's an important detail here, that Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And this is affirmed elsewhere in the New Testament. And they narrate a ridiculous scenario for the purposes of highlighting a theological distinction between themselves and the Pharisees, between themselves and Jesus, which they prove, which they think proves the foolishness of the resurrection. Because we read in verses 24 to 28 of this unfortunate woman really unfortunate, who's been married seven times. Could you imagine organizing seven weddings? <laughs> One was hard enough for me, and I didn't even do most of it. <laughs> but imagine also being the, the, you know, the fifth or sixth husband. <laughs> With what trepidation would you approach the altar? <laughs> you know, they've all the other ones ended in death. How's mine going to end? Uh, well, we all know how it ends, don't we? Uh, you want to get married? Nope. Um, so we're finally also told that the woman dies. Now, the Sadducees, with this story, are trying to highlight the point that they think that the resurrection theology is ludicrous, ridiculous. It's, it's not plausible, evidently, by their story, because this would create such a relational complexity, a knot that would just not be able to be untied if there was a resurrection of the dead, because whose wife would she be? She's been married so many times. And in doing so, they're able to achieve a three-pronged objective. They can ridicule the Pharisees, their oppositional group, religious group, who believe in the resurrection. They can silence the wisdom of Jesus. And they're able to silence Jesus' own claims of existence of life after death, specifically life found in him. We read that, in, for example, in John 11, 25 to 26. Jesus claims not only to have the life, but he is the life. We read elsewhere that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And what do we see in this passage? Verse 33, we see Jesus marvels the people once again. That's the ending of the story. Jesus marvels the people and his authority is established. Because when he's challenged with a difficult riddle, 
He doesn't quibble. He doesn't stress. He doesn't seem shock. He just replies, and this is what he says, simply this. I was struck by this. You are wrong. Okay. You are wrong. Why? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You are wrong because you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. And I think this is of great confidence to us as well because we have Jesus' words for us recorded in Holy Scripture. We have God's words in the Old Testament, New Testament. And we live in an age where we are constantly told that we are wrong for being Christians. You believe in the resurrection? That's ridiculous. You believe in miracles? Ridiculous. You believe what about Jesus? And you know, we can feel threatened. We can feel under attack because these questions can sometimes be quite challenging. You know, questions within the ethical realm. Questions within, you know, understanding science and its implications for us today. Questions on a whole range of topics that from a Christian perspective seem contrary to what the world thinks is common sense and easy to understand from a worldly perspective. And this passage encourages us to have boldness when we run Alpha courses, encourages us to have boldness when we talk to our non-Christian friends and family because we can say, you are wrong because you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. Of course, in gentleness, humility. (laughs) And in our own hearts, with the idea of winning them over to Christ out of love, because we have the truth, we have the life, we have the light. We also live in this age of of seemingly unlimited information. I I, I wouldn't even know how you'd be able to to calculate how much information there is out there. But it's ridiculous, the amount of information that we have at our fingertips. And I think part of my memory situation, where I can't remember a lot of things, is simply because I want to forget a lot of things, because there's so much out there that is rubbish, and you're filtering through it all, trying to find these little bits of gem. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack at times, it feels like that. Um, You know, but we can see that you can argue for any position as well. You can argue that the world is flat, There's a group, there's a forum for that on the internet. You can argue for any conspiracy you like and you won't be considered a village idiot or you won't be considered another or you won't be considered someone on the fringe because there's a group that can support you. They've got information there and there's a wealth of it. But what this tells us once again is that Jesus, he says to the the Sadducees, you are wrong because you neither know scriptures or know the power of God. It reminds us that all Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for the teaching, reproof, for the correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's read that part, especially the last part there again. That the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In an age of confusion... How quick are you to go to the internet to answer your question? How quick are you to defer to an authority outside of Scripture? When Scripture, we're told, has the answers profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, 
and be can, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture has answers for how you raise your children. Scripture has answers on how you engage with your work colleagues. Scripture has answers for those ethical dilemmas. Scripture has answers for how we are to approach the lens of science from the lens of God is the great why, the great I am. Let us not be too quick to rush to other sources of information, other sources than when we have God's words. We have Jesus' words right there for us to access, right there. And we also see that when Jesus says you are wrong, then we need to apply this to our own hearts as well. In humility, recognizing sometimes that what we have understood about God in the past has been incorrect. I know for my own life, this, this was not um, an easy thing to, to come to terms with, recognizing that I was wrong when Scripture confronted me, when understanding the sovereignty of God. Uh, I had grown up with an understanding of God that had God kind of at the whim or the, the, the behest of, of my will, in the sense that I could choose my own salvation, not as in work for it, but as in I would choose God. God would, would accept anyone if they just chose. Therefore, if I was apologetic enough with my apologetics, if I had a defense enough, then I could convert anyone to Christ. It was just about finding the right argumentation. And there's a word for this. It's known as Arminian theology. And as I dived more into scriptures and I understood God's word from conversations um, with, with lots and lots of people, I came to this hard point where I needed to recognize God is sovereign. And Romans chapter 9, God will choose whom he chooses. God will choose his elect. Now, this is for encouragement for us Christians because it means that we don't have to worry about our salvation. We don't have to hold on to it. It's not by our reason, our argumentation, our logic that somehow we secure and, and hold our salvation. There's a great comfort in that. But for me, I felt the terrible reality of that. Some people are not chosen by God. And I really found this bitterness kind of welling up in my heart. How is God good? How can God do that? But I needed to come back to Scripture. I needed to understand the Scriptures and the power of God. The Scriptures say quite clearly, and they affirm quite strongly, that God is sovereign. The Scriptures affirm that God is love. It doesn't say He possesses love. He is love. God is truth. God has no shadow of sin in him. And I needed to understand the power of God, that it's only by the power of God that the dead can be raised to life, that we are needing God's power to bring us to his love. And that was hard. That was humbling. It was about a, a two-year journey, I would say. Two-year journey. So are you pressing into the Scriptures, Jesus and God's words, being prepared to hear that you are wrong? You see, in this situation with the Sadducees, Scriptures had made it abundantly clear in 
many passages, such as in Isaiah, Job, Psalms, Daniel, that the resurrection of the dead is a reality. Jesus is highlighting an irony. He says, you know, you Sadducees, you're basing your argumentation on Scripture because you see that they say, we read, Moses said. And it's referring to Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. This whole idea of you, you marry your, um, your brother's wife if their husband passed away so that you could bear them a son to keep the name continuing on. It's, it's neither the Scriptures... Um, have the, sorry, let me say that again. The, the scriptures have said this in Deuteronomy, and Jesus is saying, but you have based your teaching of the resurrection on a false conclusion because you've ignored or you have not properly interpreted other portions of scripture. Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, and the list goes on. You are wrong. Which leads us to our next point, our next point, which comes from verses 30 to 33. Verses 30 to 33, and it is this. Understand the Scriptures and the power of God, knowing God is the God of the living, not the dead. Understand the Scriptures and the power of God, knowing God is the God of the living, not the dead. So in verse 30, Jesus outlines a simple solution. He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. On his own authority, Jesus offers a very simple solution to this riddle. He simply says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. He cuts their problem in half. He draws his sword of wisdom and cuts it in half. Jesus effortlessly removes the complexity. Effortlessly. He says, Immortality renders the temporary institution of marriage obsolete. It doesn't function in the new creation. It's not a factor in the resurrection. So we don't need to know whose wife she would be because she wouldn't be married. She would be like the angel. Now, I believe that this has two important applications. First, for those of us who are married, and then secondly, for those of us who are single. Now, I think it's quite natural when we hear these words of Jesus, for those that are in a happy marriage, those that are blessed with a, a spouse that loves and supports and grows us, and we have a wonderful memories with, to feel a little bit shocked and surprised at Jesus' words. You mean I'm not going to have this richness of marriage in eternity? There might even be a degree of disappointment at Jesus' words. <laughs> Jamie, uh, you know, when I told her about this, she said, well, we can still sit on a cloud together. <laughs> now, th uh, Yes, as lovely as that is. <laughs> Sorry, babe, it's not, it's not real. I say this in all gentleness. Uh, yes, and I know of many other Christian couples who, who also have uh, happy marriages. They're, they've been married for 40 plus years, longer than I've been alive. The marriages where they enrich each other and they're better off together than when they were apart. 
I know that's certainly the case in my marriage. I'm a better man today because I'm married. By God's grace, you reap the benefits of that. Um, and so do I. Um, but, but Piper, helpfully here, he actually reassures us that that which is to pass is, is actually superseded by something better, much, much better. It's a lengthy quote, but I want you to have a read of this. I thought he just encapsulated it perfectly. He says, In sum, marriage ends because its procreating purpose is not needed in the resurrection. Marriage ends because all its pleasures, notice that all its pleasures are preludes and pointers to something so much better than the human heart cannot imagine. And you can look at that scriptural reference right there. When the perfect comes, the partial passes away. And marriage ends in order to put the married and the non-married on the same footing for enjoying the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. The fullness and pleasure forevermore. It's a prelude. It's a prelude. In short, what awaits us is going to be so much better. We're going to be better off. It's going to be amazing. And there will be no tear there will be no sadness of it. We'll be like, wow. Because we will be entering into the eternal bliss with the sweetness of knowing that we will be in the richness, more so than the richness we can have in marriage. And, and God calls marriage a joining of two, becoming one, more close than that, because we will be in God's presence for eternity and his community forever in a bond that is beyond our comprehension. Tim Keller also, I, I felt, really talks about, so then what, what is marriage for then? If marriage is just temporary, what is it for? And he says this, what then is marriage for? And he says it's this, it is for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. The common horizon, um, horizon husband and wife look toward is the throne, the throne of God. And the holy, spotless, and blameless nature we will have. Each spouse should see the great thing that Jesus is doing in the life of their mate through the word, the gospel. Each spouse should then give him or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision that day that you will stand together before God, seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. What a high calling. What a high calling. And we see this being... Um, this is Timothy, Timothy Keller draws this and understands these implications from Ephesians chapter 5, and you can see the section there, 22 to 23, but we're going to zone in onto 25 and 27. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we read in Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, that's uh, 33, this marriage is somehow this picture of Christ's unity to the church. It's this mysterious picture that we see of Christ, God to his church, Christ the groom, his church being the bride. And he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, make holy, set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, scriptures, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That is Christ, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is a high calling, gentlemen. A very high calling. A wonderful calling. 
but one that we ought to take seriously for those of us men who are married. You had it easier when you were single. You did. You did. (laughs) You did. But you have the glorious opportunity of now being in the process, joining the process with God to sanctify your wife, to make her spotless, pure, and a wonderful gift. You will stand together, as Tim Keller said earlier, you'll stand together before God. And husbands, are you going to able, be able to look God at God and say, yes, I took that privilege of being married to such and such. And here she is. And Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now this, of course, applies to our wives as well, needing to, recognizing that the call is for them to sanctify us as well. But the burden seems to be in Scripture, um, especially from Ephesians, for the men to pursue that with an aggressiveness. This is an area I, I often fail in. Don't be too proud to ask your wife, how can I lead you better? How can I help you become more of a, a beautiful creation, creature for God? How can I bring you to my God and your God with a clear conscience and with joy knowing that I fulfilled my privileged duty? As we mentioned, there is, a, there is also a, second, a secondary application to this passage. For those of us who are not married, who have the privilege and gift of not being married, Jesus' response, the trans- response shows the transitory nature of our time here on earth, and that marriage itself is transitory. We each need to have our minds heavenly framed with a heavenly perspective. The want you might have so much to be married, God knows that. He knows that. And recognize, hold that tension with this other one and recognize that marriage is not permanent. You have not received second best if you have received the calling to singleness. In fact, I think it could be argued quite clearly that Paul argues quite strongly that singleness is better in many ways. We read in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, um, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 verse particularly 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. He was single. In verse 8, to the unmarried I say that it is good for them to remain single. It is good. In 1 Corinthians 7, 32, he says, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Our focus is on the Lord. 34, the unmarried woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. And Paul goes on, so much so, to say in 1 Corinthians 7, 38 to 40, that refraining from marriage is actually better and happier. Happier. Happier than being married. This strikes right across the grain, cuts, cuts right across the grain, of our society, our culture's narrative. And I would say, sadly, sometimes the church is fed into this narrative as well. Think of all of those dating shows, Love at First Sight, or is it Married at First Sight, or is it Divorced After the Show? 
or love is blind. All of these reality shows that have come out to tap into that, that desire, that cultural norm, that societal hunger for what it believes the ultimate expression of love is to be married or to be in this relationship of commitment to one another. Even though society has disposed of marriage long ago, there's still that heart pull towards it. But it's failed to understand that the marriage that we await is when Christ, the bridegroom, arrives in splendor and receives us, his church, and we will be received up to him in glory, and we will be spotless and blameless. So can I encourage you, those of us who are single, that you have, been, you have received a high calling. You have received a high calling. And especially that you have received a calling to be holy and blameless before the Lord. That you have received the gift of being anxious about the things of the Lord. Anxious of the things of the Lord. Ask the Lord, for those of us who are single and for those of us who are married, to press into your heart daily how you can appreciate the gift he has given you, whether that be marriage or singleness. In verses 31, we read, 31 to 32, we read the second component of Jesus' argumentation. He says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, Jesus' defense here goes right to the heart of what this, this is a common passage, understood kind of like in our society, John 3.16. He goes to a passage that's really, really clearly understood, well known. It's a verse from the Pentateuch. And he says, emphasizing the grammatical, sent, uh, the grammatical tense of the verb, am. And he says, it's not I was, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He focuses on that specific grammatical construction to prove his point. Jesus affirms the resurrection of the dead. A bit husky, am I? Thank you. Um, he affirms the resurrection of the dead. And we see that this is true. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they likewise looked forward to the hope, a hope of the resurrection from the dead. In Hebrews 11, 10 to 13, we read, Looking forward to the city that is foundation, whose designer and builder is God, Abraham died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Likewise, you can also read more about Jacob and Isaac's hope in Hebrews chapter 11, we read of their hope being placed in the future resurrection. God is the God of the living. Because God remains faithful to himself. God remains faithful to himself. And death cannot sever his covenantal connection to those he has called. It cannot sever it. God's covenantal promises to his faithful ones was grounded in himself. And God is life, truth, and resurrection. Therefore, God is the, the God of the living, not the dead. This is of comfort to us 
when we're surrounded by, by our sufferings, we need to take comfort that this is only temporary. When we know of friends and family who are at death's door due to illness or are approaching death or when we've lost friends and family, that if they're in Christ, that if they're in Christ, we have hope knowing that God will maintain his covenantal connection to those whom he has called. God is the God of the living, not the dead. Just like the crowd. Are we astonished at what Jesus has to say? Are we astounded at his words, his authority, his authority, his, his directness? Because he has demonstrated with power and scriptural authority the truth claims of the resurrection. Likewise, we can receive Jesus' words with confidence. We can receive Jesus' words with confidence. Why? Because he has evidenced the truthfulness of his words because he went to the cross. He took himself to the cross willingly. He willingly stepped into death so that you could have resurrection life. Knowing what was before him, he took that punishment, that, that severing that we were to receive with God's holy wrath onto himself so that we would be able to, in Christ, stay permanently fixed in the covenantal promises of connection with God which cannot be severed from death. That is the truth you and I have. That we need to step in daily, recognizing that Jesus' words have authority because we have been given that power of life right now. Jesus' death has washed away all of that sin, that brokenness that you might be experiencing, that, that shame. And he has placed us, seated us in heaven with himself, we're told. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, in authority, guaranteeing that his words, that he is the God of the living, not the dead, is true. True today as it was right then. Are we reminded also that Jesus is not an idea? He is a person, a person who is alive right now, today. And in your moments of weakness, in your moments of struggle, in your moments when you feel overwhelmed with the complexity of life, you can come to Christ, you can come to Christ knowing that he has already given of himself the greatest gift you could ever receive, which is himself, so that you could have life in him and have life to the fullest. This is the truth we have, and may we profess it day in, day out, if we are in Christ. And if you are not yet in Christ, this offer stands for you. He is the God of the living, not the dead. Step into that. Let's us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God of the living. Thank you that you rescued us from the, the death that we were fi finding ourselves in, that you have given us a new life, a life that is rich and full and that nothing can touch it. A life that we can have joy amidst suffering. A perplexing joy that the world doesn't understand. Because we have a greater hope. We have a greater truth than what it can offer. Life in the eternal Son. Through Jesus Christ we have been made new. And we thank you for this Jesus. In your name. May we live out this reality today. In Jesus name. Amen.